Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is Petter Duffy. Petter is the founder director of Seluxar and Quantum Risk Creator. A serial risk services entrepreneur, Petter has worked extensively across the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East. In Petter's recent paper on quantum risks and the uncertainty continuum, he explains the quantum risks effect of complex systems and digitalization in a world growing in uncertainty. Petter also serves on two technical committees of the International Organization for Standardization, more widely known as ISO, focused on risk and governance. And we'll be talking about those and his ideas today. Welcome, Petter. Thank you, David, for having me. Looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Now, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your background and specifically what brought you to risk management work in the first place. Sure. Well, I guess uh, about a thousand years ago, I was a young officer in the uh, Irish military and I spent 15 years there. And in the early 90s, decided that uh, I wanted to go further afield and so created my first company. And here I am today, some almost 30 years later. So, uh, yes, uh, the military where the word risk was actually rarely mentioned, complete utter focus on achieving objectives, uh, but doing it in a way in which you could endure and achieve those objectives. That really, I guess, sets the scene for everything I've done subsequently in my various uh, endeavors and risk companies. Well, one of our earlier guests uh, in the podcast series was General Charles Jacoby, who uh, is working with Leo Tillman, who's the author of a book called Agility. And he brought a lot of that military perspective to this idea of agility and to risk. And I know it's pretty fascinating. And I'm running into more and more people who have that background and, and whether the terminology that was used was risk terminology. It's interesting to me to see how that training and experience others in that space are bringing into a more corporate setting. So we'll get to maybe a little bit more of, of how your risk management work is of interest or should be of interest to the people who are listening. But I want to go back to what I mentioned earlier, is that you serve on two ISO technical committees around risk and governance. And I'm wondering, can you describe those for the people who are listening and, and where their work stands at this point? Because I'm not sure everyone is aware of, of what you guys are doing. Sure. So there are, I serve on two technical committees. Uh, these committees are all given numbers. So 262 is responsible, owns risk management guidance um, within ISO. We are responsible for ISO 31000. I, during the revision of that some years ago, I led the design spec for that revision. And just now I'm convener of the uh, strategy advisory group. The other technical committee, 309, just now is looking forward to the publication of the first global guidance on governance of organizations. And I've had a very active role in that. And effectively, that guidance will, in some respects, have a codification of what guidances exist around the world in the areas of governance, as distinct from corporate governance, but will be future-proofed, where you will see that it will be purpose-centric. It will speak to the business model, the value generation, uh, risk governance, and other topics at a principal level. And is there a timeline yet on those, or are they still through? I mean, 31,000's been around, so so what about the governance one? Is that something that uh, has a timeline for, for publication, or where do those stand? Sure. We're we're looking towards calendar year end 2021 for publication of ISO 37,000, 
governance of organizations. With regards to 31,000, there's the process now uh, that we're just beginning to anticipate where we'll be required to undertake, to consider whether or not we need to undertake a five-year review, which will be up at the end of this year. And of course, there, the challenge will be in reflecting on the fact that uh, 31,000 in large part reflected the great advances in the thinking of the folk uh, down under in Australia, New Zealand. So we uh, copied effectively ANZ 4360, enhanced, embellished it. But now the dial has moved. 4360 really is a three decades old guidance. But the world has changed now from a linear kind of world state that existed back then to a complex non-linear world today. So we need to reflect on that and see what we have to do to gather uh, thinking around what's understood by risk or perhaps more so in the areas of uncertainty and how organizations have changed, become more like ecosystems themselves than being vertically integrated, which they once were when I was a boy, for sure. Well, and let's go into that a little bit, because, you know, I think oftentimes when when people try to put together documents about principles or, or standards, they wind up being something constricting and, and really turn into tick-the-box exercises. And I think 31,000 and, and the ANC standard you mentioned also were two examples of things that worked well, that were put together well. And, and whenever I hear somebody talk about them, I, I hear people speak favorably. So I think that's, they're looking more at the life of an organization and, and I think allowing for some flexibility. So a little bit of what I heard you touch on are organizations as systems. But there was also something you mentioned about risk not being linear anymore. And I wondered, in terms of a critique, the risk profession has certainly advanced. We hope risk governance is advancing at the board level. And I think that's uh, you know, a very strong emphasis of what the DCRO is about. Can you help us understand, though, when, you're, when there's a critique of risk no longer being linear and the approaches to a, a linear mindset no longer being of good service, can you tie that in with this idea of organizations as systems and then maybe go back to why? how does this change the way in which boards should be thinking about um, their risk in the organization? So let's first of all just maybe reflect on risk. What is it? And an explanation that I recently heard that I really like is that every time we're making a decision, we're managing a risk. And of course, that really, I, I, th- I think, beautifully captures the essence of 31,000, which is a guidance that talks about the effect of uncertainty on objectives. So once we know where we're going, we've got a bunch of decisions to make in terms of the speed at which we're going to get there, our appetite for risks on the journey, or maybe our intolerance of risks for certain parts of that journey. Now, the reality is that if we think about decision-making in an organization 20, 30, 40 years ago, where everything was done pretty much in-house. Everything was vertically integrated. There was a very kind of a military command and control structure. But now with globalization, the drive for margin management, profit enhancement has driven us towards just-in-time and equally so outsourcing. So today, organizations are really only vertical at the center, but they are extended thereafter. And that extension to suppliers or to partners is something which creates this ecosystem effect. And it becomes quite problematic 
and this is where the going from linear to nonlinear, this challenge exists. Because it's interesting that very few organizations, for example, would today be able to show you their objectives map, those primary objectives, those secondary objectives, and what matters most to the achievement of all of those. Who's doing what with regards to each one of those objectives, not just at the corporate level, but disaggregated down through the strategic business units, the regions and the business units. And then when you extend the idea of the organization beyond what we're doing within the corporate control to partners, you realize that very, very few organizations, I suspect it's quite possible there isn't any single organization in the world today has end-to-end -end visibility of their tier one suppliers, tier one being the people with whom we're directly contracting. And for sure, most are absolutely blind with regards to tier twos and threes. Now, if you just begin to, to imagine what a map would look like of your objectives, those partners, those suppliers that are mission critical to achieving what matters most to achieving objectives, you end up with a very complex picture. You know, when we consider, for example, COSO ERM, that came out in 2004, when you consider ISO 31000, the thinking that is inherent, at least for me as an expert, not wearing my ISO hat here, but we as an expert, as a risk and governance expert, I look at documents that speak and tell the story of a single entity that is almost a master of everything that it, it, can, it, that it surveys. But that's no longer the case. So we've moved into this ecosystem world. But now with the pace of technology disruption, with the ecosystem nature of decision making, with pace of change, you see that we're, we've got, we're living within this complex environment, a complex adaptive system, you might say. And that leads to nonlinearity. When things go wrong, they can go wrong very quickly. Risks and their impacts can become comp compound and uncontrollable. That's where the nonlinearity comes in. How do you understand that stuff? How can you master it? How do you contain it? That's the challenge that's in front of us risk professionals. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about that, Peter, is that, that at the same time that we know that there's this potential for amplification of risks on the downside, that same amplification is very evident on the upside and welcomed. So with the expression, you know, something going viral, until until the pandemic of, of last year, uh, that was generally talked about as a favorable thing. But I think there's often a, I don't know if it's an unwillingness or disinterest in understanding that viral can also be on the downside. So we've got this this balance. So there's a good thing to complexity, right? There's, there's the potential for us to realize nonlinear gains. So, you know, we've, we've, we tend, I think, sometimes to go into discussions of risk in said linear ways. But then and you mentioned COSO, and I think I think this grid uh, appeared first in COSO or certainly incorporated into the first version of COSO. But you'll hear a lot of board members talk about this probability and impact grid. Mm. So two-dimensional, uh, you know, the high, 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 low, all of that, that, that's supposed to give you a sense for where to prioritize. I always talk about how that doesn't account for any of the potential for something to amplify, so to become nonlinear. But you've actually added a different third dimension to that, and that's related to, if I'm not mistaken, how well we understand these exposures. Is that is that correct? 
Yes, well, I, I would contend that, you know, if we, you know, if we imagine a single entity, just to, for the purposes of sharing my ideas here, everything within a circle describes, everything that's inside that circle describes its risk universe. If we take a very thin ribbon inside that outer circle, that maybe takes up 15, 20% of the surface area of the circle, that would describe your, your typically those uh, risks that can be mitigated through, for example, let's say traditional insurance methods. Why? Because there are certain types of risks that it maybe are in the order of 15 or 20% of the risk universe in a typical entity. Those types of risks are risks which can be put to a distribution. We can measure them between zero and one because we have observations that we can make of similar occurrences across a large, large sample. Then we get into the, the, the really messy stuff inside that very thin band, and we see, okay, gosh, well, no, we can't measure between zero and one. We can go high, medium, low. We can go one to five. But here's the problem. Given pace of technology advancements, you know, we're, we're living in a, in a century today that is experiencing today 20,000 years of technology advancement in just the 100 years of this century alone. That's a lot of change. The reality is it's becoming almost impossible to identify risks at their, the level of the root source. You can't identify it. You can't manage it. But even just imagine for a moment you could identify it and understand it um, well enough. Then you can contain it and you can put your high, medium, low. But the reality is with the ecosystem nature of organizations, our dependence on partners and suppliers and God knows all the tier twos and threes and so forth, the reality is we just do not have the level of knowledge required to credibly put levels one to five in terms of this semi-quantitative measurement of risk. So the, the third dimension is a theoretical one. It is this level of knowledge. If you can imagine the X and Y that we're so used to and love uh, in terms of the impact on the X and likelihood on the Y, that there's a Z coming out, this, this, this kind of um, level of, of knowledge. And what we're now talking about is in terms of what's plausible, not what's likely, because we can't credibly put a number to likelihood anymore, I would contend, other than in the simplest of cases. But by and large, if you're a multinational corporation, if you're, if you're conscious, if you're aware of your networked environment and your extended nature, then surely you don't have the level of knowledge. Uh, you can simply broadly say what's plausible but not what's likely. That's where this uh, third dimension comes in. But, you know, the truth of it then as well is that level of knowledge is a very, it's very hard to ascertain at what point, if you don't know what you don't know, at what point can you say that you've got sufficient level of knowledge to frame an understanding of what you believe to be the understanding of your risk? This is all just, uh, David, in the space of trying to understand our internal and our external context. And the reality is that we're living in a pretty complex world now, fast-moving and complex. But, but I think that's a really important extra dimension to add. And, and I'll just, again, relate something that, that's been important to me for a long time, which is the very first presentation I gave at a conference back in the early 1990s was called How Wrong Can You Be? Focus was on how very small changes in the assumptions we make in modeling risk can be the difference between being uncompetitive or out of business. And, and it really doesn't take a lot. So when I hear you describe this third dimension, 
I think of myself sitting in a boardroom and, you know, let's say the discussion goes to probability, probability and impact. And let's say one board member wants to focus on a specific issue that appears on that grid. What's the process that they should follow? Is it, is it a question of saying to the person uh, discussing that risk, how much do we know about this? Or do they need to keep going deeper and deeper to get a sense for whether they have the confidence that what they're doing, and maybe it's an allocation of the cost of risk, but they have a confidence that what they're doing in pursuit of their purpose uh, is actually smart. You know, do you have any suggestions? What, where, where does a board member go knowing that, uh, that there's a substantial amount of their risk universe that they may not understand well? Interesting question. I've got a, a kind of a rule of thumb, my, what I call the tell me, show me, prove it to me rule. And I quite often find at the, at the corporate level, people can speak with a high degree of confidence about the systems, uh, the internal rigors that they have in understanding risks. And it looks pretty good. You know, I would give it you know, quite often, invariably, a score of nine out of 10, eight out of 10 at worst. And then when I ask, well, you know, can you show me what these systems look like? Uh, let me just look at the documents. And I invariably find that you begin to detect that there are gaps. And at the show me level, I find that the scores can go down to maybe six out of 10. Because what I find is that, let's say, in these governance risk and compliance platforms, that in fact, the data that's in there isn't coming, in fact, from the people that have the information, those on the, the front line, the business owners, essentially. Quite often, the information is gathered by the second line through various methods, quite often manual, strangely, using GR and then inputted physically into GRC platforms. Now, other than in banking environments where, where because of, of, of regulatory obligations and so forth, there's more rigor, but it's more rigor on the second line. And you find that, okay, so what we know, we know secondhand. We don't know it from the horse's mouth. The people who are closest to the customer, the people who are on the ground, who are closest to operations, who are in the markets. And so your, your score at the show me level drops down to five out of 10 and so forth. And of course, I've told you just now that it drops to one out of 10 when you find that at the prove it to me level, prove to me, you know, show me that this number you have on the top that I can disaggregate down to a data source and you find Quite frankly, you just cannot, because the second line is not a data source, and the the system kind of falls over at that point. Now, of course, there are challenges in relaying to you know the chair of a risk committee that that is the truth, uh, but it's rare enough that what I've just that story uh, that I've just shared there is rare enough that that wouldn't be largely representative of of um, the quality of the kind of data lineage and governance, I would describe it as, in terms of the risk data architecture. So you just can't put numbers anymore to stuff, I would say, zero, you know, the one to fives, other than in the simplest of cases. And you remind me of one of my favorite quotes, um, which is attributed to Mark Twain, uh, is that uh, ignorance and confidence will take a man a long way. And and there's a there's a sense that when we don't want to know how little we know, it actually makes us more likely to make a decision, or more, and we don't know if it's going to be the right decision, but but at least we have confidence, uh, or more confidence in it. So I mentioned in the introduction that you have this paper called Quantum Risks and the Uncertainty Continuum, um, and I think any time the word quantum is used, at least for people like me, 
I look further. I mean, it looks interesting to me, so I want to know more. Can you take us there? Um, you know, help us understand this because this expression "quantum risks" and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I have it associated with you. So when I hear that expression, I, I think of the work that you're doing. Can you take us to that place and tell us what it is and and how we understand quantum risks better? Sure. So I guess I, I started trying to put together this puzzle about three years ago, you know, trying to understand, um, given my kind of history over the last couple of decades in this particular space, I would have loved classical risk methods and tools, including, for example, bow tie and things like that. And I found, you know, something is just getting so hard <laughs> when operating at, at a corporate level, advisory level and so forth, to use a tool that's very linear in nature like bow tie across complex environments. And I found that, guess what? It seems that after a bad thing happening, it's rare enough that you could find any evidence of it in the risk register. Risk registers tend not to foretell this thing that's going to happen. And so I began to become doubtful that the the systems that we were using were, were, were fit for purpose. And it was in a conversation about six months ago with um, a, a member of, of our Brains Trust, Tony Fish, that he pushed me on this. And I, I picked up a paper um, that I had developed about 18 months ago, which hadn't been put out, that hadn't been published. And I just spent some long, hard uh, days looking further. And I said, you know something? I have a background. My, my, my primary degree is in biochemistry. And I just have a, an interest in, in STEM matters. And I said, hmm, quantum things which exist simultaneously, rather in different states, simultaneously, even though they can't always be observed together, that is subatomic particles, particles and, and, and waveforms. I said, I wonder if I could use that. And I simply inserted just two words in the middle of what I've just described there across systems. So what you have is things which cannot be seen by the naked eye, let us say, uh, using classical risk methods and practices. But if you, in the first instance, think of the organization as an ecosystem, in fact, you know, let's start with, is the ecosystem stupid? Start from that perspective. Think in terms of mapping your business objectives, secondary and tertiary, and what matters most to their achievement. Think, for example, of ESG, this alphabet soup of ESG, where in a, that's environment, social, and governance, where we have different E people, different S people, different G people. They actually quite often don't know each other. The different E, S, and G people are all using different standards. The different E, S, and G people are all using different taxonomies. And the different ways in which E, S, and G are meant to touch the primary and secondary objectives are all described differently. All the risks are measured differently. Think in terms of cyber. The chief information security officer, he's got a different language and measures things differently to the privacy and GDPR person, GPO in an organization. So you have here then a situation where across an ecosystem, the same thing that can happen, the people that are required to understand it and to monitor it, to measure it, are all using different instruments. How could you possibly see it? So the first thing to understand is that these things exist, whether we like it or not. And sadly, often, quite often seen through the rearview mirror after something bad has happened. But in fact, 
there's good news, I would say, because once once you understand that these things exist and that we need to just start not from the historical kind of linear world position that we would have had in the past, i.e. the assumption, you can always identify the risk first, and then you go about assessing it second. If you start from the position of saying that might not always be the case, that gives you, that empowers you to reimagine, reimagine everything. And what you find yourself doing, I would contend, is sticking with the fundamentals of risk thinking, but simply applying new tools to trying to track and trace these these things called quantum risks. Um, now, it does become problematic in, in multinational corporations where theoretically you have data lake. The reality is that very, very few organizations have one system. You have networks of networks. And so quite often you'll have data boundaries that largely reflect or, you know, the, the organizational boundaries. So data as well can be trapped within these within these silos. So a quantum risk is a risk which exists uh, in different states at the same time across systems, even though they can't always be observed together. And what makes them particularly nasty is they can change shape and form as the context changes, as people's behaviors change, as we make decisions, they also change as well. And they move at the pace of change and they can scale in seconds, given that that's a function, of course, of our digital world. The only way to conclude with regards to quantum is the good news is that, in fact, the trick is not to get into thinking that we can master these things. That's not where the solution is, I would contend, respectfully. It is to say, well, we need to be indifferent to these things that we can't possibly see. We need to be anti-fragile, to use Nassim Nicholas Talib's term, which I quite like. Well, and, and I just want to stop for one second and ask you because early in the early in that answer, you had mentioned something called the bow tie uh, approach, and and I'm not sure all of our listeners know what that is. Could you just in 30 seconds um, uh, sure. describe what that is so that they, in their mind, can picture it as well? Yeah, beautiful and simple uh, bow tie. As you know, us gents, those of us that are male, will wear a bow tie, and um, <laughs> it's simply a root cause analysis on the left hand side of the bow tie of the root cause. The center of the bow tie is the thing happening, good or bad. And on the right-hand side, you have the, the the way in which you would hope to control the aftermath of an event. So it's a root cause. Lots and lots and lots of really good content on YouTube. Just put in bow tie. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's a way to represent something visually. Beautifully so, but, but really, really, really tough in ecosystems. And you just find it just becomes too too difficult. And, you know, the, the point about these things is, you need to be able to visualize something which is risk as a concept. It's yeah. not a physical thing. Yeah. So it just right. collapses, sadly. And then when it's observed, it becomes something. So it, it's, it's that, yes. again, that same quantum nature. Well, th- I mean, this is fascinating. So there are a couple of things here. We've just got a couple minutes left. It's really easy to bring lots of bad news about risks that you can't see, that you can't control, that you don't know what they are. And in a business world, I mean, in, in a board world, we still have to make decisions and we still have to find our purpose and, and the journey that we're going to take on that purpose. What is it that, you know, it's, it's the danger is always when we present to boards or executives this whole myriad of things that can go wrong is that they throw that whole thing out and just say, well, look, I, I don't understand any of that. I'm just going to go with my gut. How do we take something like this? 
and, and again, turn it into a tool that helps us to make better decisions as opposed to being afraid of the things we don't know. How is it that a board can can uh, instruct their risk infrastructure? Because it seems to me if quantum computing has the potential to render all of our encryption uh, moot, perhaps quantum risk has the ability to or potential to render all of our current risk management methods obsolete. So, so what does a board member say to their risk infrastructure on how to still incorporate quantum risks, but in a way that helps them make better decisions? The good news with this is once you understand, you don't have to accept everything I'm, I put out in my paper, literally. <laughs> if you simply accept the thematic, the thematic yeah. Yeah. of the ecosystem world in which we live and these things, whether you want to call them quantum risk or something else, once you understand that these things can't be mastered in the way in which we've been used to mastering things using classical risk methods and practices, then the dial moves us to simply saying, so these things, we simply... It's a bit like the the um, the joke of of uh, two guys in the wood running from the bear. You don't have to be fast <laughs> on the bear. You only have to be fast on the other guy. What's that mean? What that means is you simply have to be better at sensing, not quite detecting, but just sensing and anticipating what's in front, what's happening ahead. Remembering that risk is all about looking through, driving the car, looking forward. It's not about driving the car through the rear view mirror. So being able to sense and to anticipate what's ahead faster, better, more effectively than the next guy. Let him or her uh, get eaten by the quantum risk bearer uh, and not you. So then, and that then ties in, it overlaps beautifully, I would say, with something else that has gaining currency at a board level, and that is the whole idea of being agile, right. agile decision-making, and how we now know with the, you know, one of the great uses of AI is to certainly um, uh, automate decision-making. But at the strategy level, it's not about automation, it's augmentation. So we're flattening organizations now. Organizations like ING, for example, have become the poster boys of, of Agile. And uh, so all of these things, there's kind of a, a convergence of all of these things. And so we can continue to use certain uh, fundamentally sound risk methods and practices, but understanding there's a different context now, different application. Yeah. No, this is great. And in fact, as I'd mentioned early on, uh, we talked about your military background, General Jacoby and uh, Leo Tillman in an earlier podcast episode. Uh, that's their emphasis is on agility. Uh, and so I think that's a great way to tie these together. Better, this is uh, a really fascinating conversation. I know you and I are going to have more conversations going forward, but I'm really appreciative of your bringing this to our uh, environment here because it's you know, we're so early in understanding what you've brought forward that I think that you know, there's there's much more that you're going to add to this conversation. And I'm glad you're part of the ISO initiatives. Uh, and I hope more people become aware of just this this way of thinking. And really important, is, as you had said, to accept that these exist, but then ask ourselves, you know, how is it that we're going to be better than the next person? How is it we're going to outcompete? Uh, you know, or outrun the bear, as you'd said, outrun the other person from the bear. How is it that we become better at achieving our purpose by uh, by this knowledge? So thank you again. David, thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.